Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. One thing about when you're managing multi-location uh, operations, whether you're in restaurants or they're medical, banking, legal, you know, chiropractic, gyms, it doesn't matter, um, is that very often when you're delivering services at the location level, um, that there isn't just one lever you can pull to increase sales, right? Uh, to make customers happier, to uh, increase profitability. Oftentimes, it's not one lever, it's 30,000 little levers that all have to be pulled. Now, none of them are going to sink you, but if enough of those levers aren't pulled correctly, your customers will have a bad experience with your business, your customer satisfaction will be down, and your sales and profits will follow. And that's what we do at Ops Analytica. We help you manage pulling all 30,000 little levers right in the right order, and uh and then at the same time, we're providing you with data, amazing visibility into uh, what levers aren't getting pulled, where you have issues, so you can figure out what the heck's going on and fix them. And then you move on. And then every time you correct an issue, you make your employees happier, you make it your, their jobs easier, you make your customers happier, and your sales and profits will follow. Check us out at OpsAnalytica.com. What up, Order Up Show podcast listeners? Hey, it's Tommy. We're back with another episode. I told you we would have more episodes and we are cranking them out these days. It's wonderful. I am super excited to welcome my guest all the way from Houston, Texas, Jonathan Horowitz. How are you doing this morning, Jonathan? I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, happy to be here. Oh, uh, yeah, man. We're going to have a good time. This is a very hard-hitting, journalistic podcast. Uh, all, you know, it's very, it's very intense. I've got my serious hat on. I've got my very serious hat on, so I'm ready. Good, good. So, Jonathan, uh, here's how the podcast works. We ask everybody the same five questions, and uh, we just chat. And so let's just get started. Tell us what you do today, Jonathan, and how you got there from your first job in the industry. Sure. So I am currently um, the CEO and founder of a hospitality consulting company here in Houston called Convive. C-O-N-V-I-V-E, Convive Hospitality Consulting. Um, and Convive, actually, it took me a while to figure out a name, but Convive means kind of a, a, a diner at a table or somebody joining you in a feast. So that was uh, how I, I think it's a French derivation. It's probably supposed to be Convive, but here in Texas, it's Convive. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, I've actually been in the industry about 16 years now. Uh, I'm a recovering attorney, practiced law uh, for about six years uh, prior to jumping into the hospitality business in 2005. And interestingly, I had never really been in the industry before. Um, and I entered uh, by joining a husband and wife couple who had started a small wine bar here in Houston and we met and got kind of got to talking and i was interested in the industry and so my first actual entry into and foray into the business was as an owner uh of this wine bar concept i bought part of the company from them in 2005 and we kind of went from there um when i joined them there were about 10 people total in the company including the bartenders and the barbacks um and over the course of the next 10 years we grew uh, to about 17 locations uh, with wow. a number of different concepts. Yeah, we added a couple of additional concepts, restaurant concepts um, and other things. So we had 17 locations. 
both inside and outside of Texas. And then about a hundred, uh, we went from 10 employees to about 650 uh, when, wow. when it was all said and done. So I left um, about 10 years later in 2015 and I had done, you know, a, as is typical in most small businesses as they're growing, I had done a little bit of everything um, top to bottom. I used to joke, I joked all the time that um, there was nobody in the company who had run more cat five cable and crawled through the ceilings than I had um, every time we expanded. And so, you know, that was, that was 10 years of on the job experience and learning. Um, and then in 2015, uh, I took the role, uh, as CEO of another local, uh, restaurant company independently owned here, uh, two very longstanding legacy brands that had been around, uh, one was opened in 1962 and one was opened in 1973. And I ran that company for about five years. Uh, we had some growth and introduced a new concept, um, and then towards the end of uh, 2019, I realized, you know, the, the owner of that company was, was older and had kind of a, a different idea of, of the direction that he wanted to go. And so I started thinking about what I was going to do next. And uh, I had always contemplated the idea of having, you know, my own, my own business. Uh, and at that point, I figured there was no better time, you know, in terms of my experiences and, and you know, involvement in the industry. Uh, I had been president of the Houston Restaurant Association for a couple of years, have been, you know, very heavily involved in the Restaurant Association statewide. I currently uh, am on the executive committee of the state board. And, um, you know, my, my network was, was good and my contact list was good. And so I thought this is the time um, to launch. And I launched Convive on February 1st of 2020. Nice. So, nice. as you can imagine, <laughs> great timing for the uh, uh, launch of a new hospitality consulting business because I had about six weeks before everything shut down. Um, and so, uh, the last year has obviously been very interesting and not, you know, gone as as planned. However, uh, it has turned out quite quite well. Um, right in the beginning of the shutdown, when I had some more time on my hands. I actually went and got my real estate license um, in addition to my law license. So I, I am, am doing a little bit of commercial real estate uh, for restaurant clients as well. Um, so that's been helpful. And uh, really through the past year, it's it hasn't been that bad. I've got some great projects that I've been working on and, and things have really picked up in the past few months. So um, I'm surviving and staying busy and, you know, um, just kind of hanging in there like everybody else. Yeah, it yeah, was definitely, definitely a hard, hard to be an entrepreneur during the COVID shutdown because it yeah. was so uncertain. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's been very interesting because obviously it's been extraordinarily difficult on the hospitality industry overall for the past year. On the flip side, I just saw a stat the other day that um, within the state of Texas, I think new business startups and, and applications for new companies like with the Secretary of State and all of that has jumped by like 40% over the past year. So it it has driven a lot of people to, you know, kind of jump off the cliff, to, so to speak, and, and, and launch their own businesses. Maybe they've been thinking about it or maybe they weren't sure what to do, but you know, this has kind of pushed them to do it. So the, 
the uh, number of new businesses that that are out there right now has increased dramatically, at least in Texas, from what I saw. Well, I think Texas is just generally killing it economy-wise. It's it's always amazing to me the comparison of California to Texas and just how many people are flocking to Texas because the tax <laughs> and the regulation infrastructure is so. It's not even lax. It's just like nor. It's like what it should be. It's not. It's not oppressive. Like, like right. I think if people look at California and they go, "Well, California is like the right level of of, of government interference," then they would look at Texas and be like, "Those guys are the wild, wild west." But it's ex- exactly the opposite. Texas is the like, perfect balance of like government stewardship and what government's role should be within like a state economy. And then California is like off the charts, ludicrous and dumb. So, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I don't think, I don't think you could find two more polar opposite approaches to, to business. I mean, Texas is extremely business friendly. And as you, as you mentioned, I mean, we have seen a tremendous influx of not only businesses, but just people in general from the West Coast uh, into Texas recently. Now, they're like cockroaches. Colorado's <laughs> being destroyed by them. And, yeah. and the problem is, is that they, like, and this is a, and I, I'm trying not to get too political here, but like, the problem is, is that people who vote for that kind of oppressive taxation and government interference, they don't often logically connect their vote to the plight that forced them to leave. And so like, they're just coming to all these other states and that were, you know, a little bit more free and they're just like slowly voting them blue. So they're just destroying everything. They're <laughs> there, there, there definitely has been a shift and obviously there's a recognition of that. And so there is some resistance yeah. to it, obviously. But um, yeah, I mean, we've as a whole and, and as a state, I mean, I think we've been very fortunate um, and we, we've kind of, you know, made it through to some extent, but obviously yeah. it has been really, really difficult. And the industry has really suffered just, just like everywhere else. Yeah. And I'll get off this little kick here, but like in Colorado where I live, real estate prices have gone through the roof. Oh yeah. Same here. Same here. Absolutely. Because, because these guys sell these, like, you know, they sell a shack in California for $2 million and then they come to your town and they're like, I can buy a mansion, you know? And yes. Like, Hey, yes, that wasn't a mansion before you guys offered a million dollars for it. <laughs> it's um, true. It's very true. So getting back on subject as I have not taken my ADD meds today. Um, <laughs> so what was it like? Because I'm very curious about this because I started in this business at 14. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and we, I joke. I had a, a joke in my stand-up comedy act back in the day that, you know, I was Greek and Puerto Rican, that I was born in a kitchen and I, I came in a restaurant family. Sure. You came out of law school. You were a lawyer. So then what was it? And you, I would assume you got this, you, you bought into this thing in 2005. You're in your at least late 20s, early 30s, right? I would assume. I don't 30-ish, know. 30-ish. Yeah, 30-ish. Yeah, 30-ish. So what was it like to get in there and wash dishes at 30 after having never, you know, done that kind yeah. of stuff? Yeah. It, 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 like I, like I mentioned, it was very much on the job experience, kind of learning, learning the ropes. You know, I, I was somewhat fortunate, I guess I, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, I can't necessarily say I came up through the ranks and, and, you know, worked my way into management or anything like that, like a lot of people do, which is fantastic. Um, but 
you know, I was able to spend enough time on the ground floor working with everybody, you know, on a daily basis to be able to get the background needed to be able to understand how everything works and to be both sympathetic and empathetic uh, with regard to what employees and, and folks in the industry go through and, and how they try to make it and, you know, how difficult it really is. I mean, you know, coming in to the your first job in the industry, being an owner of something like this is somewhat unusual. Uh, but I really kind of yeah. looked at it from the standpoint of wanting to be in business. It, you know, for me, it was it was much it was all about the business aspect of things. And, you know, I happen to really, really love food and wine in general. I came from a, a food and wine loving family, um, even though nobody had really been in the restaurant business, per se. Um, you know, we, we always had an affinity for it and I was always really interested in it. And so being able to participate on the business side was really great for me. And, you know, fortunately, over the past 15, 16 years, um, it's gone fairly well and, and has been relatively successful. So I, I'm very fortunate. I, I feel very fortunate to be a part of the industry as a whole. Oh, yeah. And I mean, let's be honest, like, yeah, I made subs in 24 or in 1984 or whatever, how old I was, you know, 14. But I didn't do that for like 35 years straight. Like I did it for three months. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. I quit. And then I washed dishes for like a couple of weeks until I made it to this, the fry station. You know what I mean? So it's more about and what's interesting about this business in general is that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the owner or the bus boy, you're going to pick up that dirty plate and that dirty glass and go take it to the dish pit or take it to the bar so that it can get clean and reused. Like, so, you know, there is sure. no, sure. There's not, this isn't a Kings and there's like the Kings that live at the top of like, you know, Ford tower. And then everybody else is a peon in a factory, you know, right. You, right. You were working in restaurants, you know, you were stopping by restaurants, you were pouring people wine, you were cleaning up messes. And so Absolutely. You know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I was just more curious about doing it in your 30s. Yeah, <laughs> like when your thumb touches somebody's like eating food when you're busting a plate and you're like, Ugh. <laughs> like, you know, most hey. of us who get into the young try to get out. <laughs> right, right. No, I mean, and you know, you got to get dirty. That's how you learn. So um, it, that, that part was certainly helpful. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So that was our first question. So let's go to question number two. What is the big project slash initiative that you're working on right now? Well, uh, interestingly, um, I have been very fortunate to have a, a longstanding client um, that was one of my first actual um, bigger clients here in Houston when I, after I launched last year. And this is, a, it, it's such a cool project because it, it encompasses kind of everything I've done over the past 15 years from concept creation to development to design to build out, you know, to, to getting something open and running. So this is a 30,000 square foot family entertainment center. Oh, yeah. uh, and so I am essentially the project manager. I came, came on just kind of as a food and beverage consultant, but ended up being the project manager for the entire project for the ownership. And there was a, there was a, a family kind of bowling alley um, in a neighborhood not far from where I live and it had been around for like 50 or 60 years. And it was a big giant building, 40, 42 lanes of bowling. And it went out of business about five years ago. And the owners came in, they bought the building 
and they've totally redeveloped it. They took it down to the studs. Uh, they actually added a second level where they put office space. Um, and then they took the ground floor and they've turned it into uh, this family entertainment center. It's 30,000 square feet. It's been under construction since last summer. Um, and it's gonna have a full restaurant, two bars, private dining, uh, event rooms, eight lanes of bowling, a full arcade for the kids, like a, an e-sports room for gaming. It's got one of those 4D rides, you know, that you go, you, yeah. like a theater theater ride that blows the air in your face and shakes the chairs around and all this. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be super cool. And the neighborhood is absolutely dying for it. Um, and so I have been involved literally since they they started the the construction um you know nine months ago and we are about two to two and a half months away from opening um and so i am in the process literally right now as we speak um starting to hire uh for nice. management management team and you know getting a, a bar manager and a kitchen manager on board um as we start you know really you know ramping up to finish up the construction and and get teams created and get ready to open hopefully in june so you know it, it, it's really cool for a number of different reasons one you know i've never worked on a project quite this large with this much technology involved in all the computer systems and cabling and wiring and which is phenomenal um but to be able to to be doing this during the pandemic has been really interesting um, yeah. because you know it's it's progress and it's growth and it's it's something really cool and it's going to be innovative and fun and so it's been it's actually been helpful personally you know kind of like mentally to have something really to sink my teeth into and to and to see progress during all of this you know really kind of somewhat depressing time that we've had over the past year um so it, it's it's been a really really awesome project and and i'm excited um to to see the you know the light at the end of the tunnel and a finish line approaching um i will tell you though from an industry perspective and i think this is happening all over the place it's extremely difficult to find labor right now yeah and you know we've talked a lot about this and we were talking about this at the restaurant association what's happened early on everybody was talking about oh well everybody's getting unemployment nobody wants to work they just want to sit home and collect a check that has really kind of ended for the most part i mean obviously some people are still getting help however more so what's happened is that so many people have been displaced from their jobs they went out to other industries and have found other jobs so yeah. half the hospitality industry like working in a grocery store or driving for Amazon or you name it, they've, they've gone and found yeah. other work and they're not coming back to hospitality, which is difficult and challenging. And it's, it's going to be a problem for a while. So we are, we are kind of experiencing that firsthand right now. Well, yeah. And, and you know, it's really interesting because this is, this is such a, a, a great, especially the lower end, like the, the frontline workers, you know, it's such a great job. It has so much flexibility. And for a long time, that's what we use to get people. Hey, you're doing college. Great. Come wait tables at night. You know what I mean? But then technology has turned, you know, 
well, with all the, the the gig jobs, right? Uber, DoorDash, whatever, you know, Lyft. Sure. Um, uh, even Amazon driving, like, you know, I had something delivered from the Apple store the other day because it was actually just, it was nine bucks and it was easier to get it delivered than have to go at their stupid time, you know, and make sure. an appointment to go stand at the mall, right? And it was just like, okay, well, whatever. But like, now there's so much more flexible jobs that we are like, what what we used to rally against, right? Wait, I got to be somewhere for eight whole hours and I have to be there at seven? Wait, no, you know what I mean? Like, like that was flexible back in the day. And now with all these gig jobs, it is less flexible and you don't get greasy, you know? So like, you know, you don't, you know, sure. and, and I mean, waiting tables, when you make good money waiting tables, you work for that money. You know what I mean? You're, yeah. you're sweating, you're moving, you're on your feet. It, it's a thing. I, uh, of course, you know what I, and so I could see that and I could see, you know, like if you get, uh, yeah, I don't know. But then again, there's always like, the, let's be honest too. If we think about it, the people who work in the hospitality industry, it's a personality type. You know what I mean? And, Very and much those so. people yeah. who they want to interact and like, they want to go out and have beers after work and they want to go and, you know, they want to talk to people because that's, like, you know, doing accounting work or, you know, waiting tables, they pay like, you know, AP clerk versus a, a waiter in a good restaurant. They make the same money, but the waiter, you know, they, it's just a different person who wants to do it, you know? Yeah. And so hopefully yeah, those lifestyle. people will find De their way home. Yeah, definitely a lifestyle. You know, I actually wrote a blog on this though. I do think with this whole, like, I think we need to rethink, um, we need to rethink how the industry um, treats these gig employees because what we're at right now is like, you know, back in the day, like waiting lunches was always brutal, right? Because you never really make as much money at lunch as you would make at dinner. And sure. so you might make 20 or 30 bucks. And then you have all your side work. You're there for an hour and a half. You pay for parking. It was annoying. And so like, I think we need to start looking at how do you staff differently where you can take advantage of some of these gig employees. So for instance, maybe you have a Monday through Friday, full time, two of them waiters, right? Let's just say you're a restaurant, whatever you have waiters. So you have two and they open to close the restaurant. So they literally get there at, like, it's a day job for them. And they get there, they open the restaurant, they set everything up for all the stations. You know what I mean? They do all the side work and then they get the close and they work, the, the best tables open to close, but then you bring in seven or eight Uber drivers. They turn off their apps. They show up right at 1130. They check in. They don't do any side work. They work the rush. They tip out and they don't even, you know, and then they're gone at 130 and they're back on the road and they don't do any side work. Right. But yeah. then now you had a fully staffed lunch shift, but you're utilizing these gig laborers like a gig. So yeah, you trained them, but you know, you get rid of all the BS that nobody likes doing anyways, refilling ketchups and salt and peppers. And, and, and then, you know, but then you have your two main servers that are right, there right. 40 hours a week. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, I think, I, I think there will be an evolution. I think there will be a shift. I think what, one of the things that's really happened over the past year is that restaurants in particular have figured out how to run leaner and meaner and yeah. all of a sudden they're like hey you know maybe we don't need eight we can get by with five you know or whatever the number is and sure. we can be we can be just as productive and have just as good service 
everybody just kind of steps it up. And I think, I think we're going to see a bit of a shift, you know, going forward in terms of how staffing works. And I think, I think your idea makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it may be, it may be a little bit harder to wrangle, right. In terms of just operationally, yeah. it's a lot more moving parts. However, structurally, it seems to make sense. Well, I think the other thing that COVID did too, if you look at like just restaurants in general, it COVID removed a ton of side work out of restaurants, at least formal restaurants, I would say, not a quick serve. But you know, like you don't see salt and pepper shakers and flowers on the yeah table anymore. You know, you're not seeing preset tables with uh, with plates and silverware and napkins and setups and all that stuff on the tables. I mean, there's still going to be the back of the house side work, but you know, just in general, like. And so, you know, when you have that kind of stuff, you can, you don't have, it, I guess you can run a leaner, you can run a leaner ship a little bit that way because you're bringing salt and pepper to the table, maybe in a ramekin, right? Or whatever it is. Sure. And you're not having to do as much of that extra fancy schmancy work or whatever for a restaurant. Uh, maybe yep. you can give slightly bigger sections. And I mean, I think, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think restaurants are going to, I don't know. I mean, we already saw a contraction on like, you know, that standard sort of Applebee's type restaurant, right? The bar and grills kind For of, sure. you know, For sure. that's kind of was contracting anyways, you know? And so it, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting next couple of years. I, you know, I, I've oh, yeah. everything, positive. everything has changed. Yeah. Everything, everything yeah. certainly has changed. And I think, you know, as, as I'm sure, you know, restaurant industry is very slow to, evolve and adapt and i think what we saw in the past year is we probably saw 10 years of evolution compressed into the past year uh oh yeah out of necessity so i think we'll definitely see some lasting change from all of this and some technologies that were kind of like hovering out on the uh on the fringes yeah like, you know every like uh just the like <laughs> like ziosk should just be an app right like you should like this sort of the notion of that online ordering and then food being delivered to your table, those kinds of things. I, I right. think you're going to see a lot more of that in the future. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. So who knows? I mean, like technologies like ours, we do operations management software. So we help big, you know, we help very complex operations, like, you know, just really focus on recurring processes, holding people accountable and identifying issues. Like we've seen, we didn't really, I mean, very blessed. We didn't lose that many clients because we were working with really, yeah, I think cutting edge and, um, uh, and, you know, well-capitalized, uh, bigger clients, you know? Yeah. And, that's, uh, that's nice. Yeah. So we didn't see a huge contraction during the, during the thing. And now we're crazy busy because a lot of people are looking at this stuff going, I, you know, I need, if I'm going to try to do more with less then I got to have the visibility. Right. And that's really what our app provides sure. the visibility. So. Sure. Um, Okay, cool. See, question number three. What right. is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Well, I, I think, you know, again, I'll, I'll go back to it. I mentioned it, you know, a minute ago. Um, it, it's it's the labor. Um, yeah. You know, there's no, there, there's no two ways around it. I mean, I think the more I talk to people in the industry and like uh, it was two, three weeks ago, we were in Austin uh, for our, one of our board meetings with the Restaurant Association, and you know, got to to mingle with people from all over the state and listen to, you know, how everybody's doing and what's going on with them. And the number one thing over and over and over again is 
you know, can't find qualified labor, can't find enough bodies. Um, you know, it was it was difficult even before the pandemic. I think now as things start to kind of ramp up again and start to open up, I, I think it's becoming even more uh, of an issue and a, and a problem. Um, and, and I really think, you know, we're going to be dealing with this for a while in the industry. And I think, you know, again, going back to what we were just talking about, I think it's going to force even more change in terms of operations. And I, yeah. you know, I think what, it's not that it concerns me, but it's something that I'm always kind of thinking about is how do you adjust operationally to account for this? And, you know, what, what does the next six to 18 months look like? And with, with the growth that we're seeing and, and expansion coming and, you know, a lot more activity in the industry, uh, where, where are the workers going to come from? It's just a question of supply and demand right now. So, you know, is it that wages increase or benefits increase or you really work on scheduling or you turn to technology and say, OK, we're just not going to have as many humans. Right. We're going to have more technology handling more, more of the load. But all of those things kind of go into the mix and, and you got to figure out what works best for any particular individual concept. And so you know, from, from the standpoint of what do you, what do you think about a lot and, and what, what is concerning for me more so than, than tax issues or funding or support or, or any of that stuff. It's how do we run the business, right? How do we get the people sure. to actually run the business? And I think that's going to be a problem for a while. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and it was a problem before. Yeah. You know, and something's got to give, Right. Like, well, that, that's what I can't figure out. I, I, you know, at this point, what, what is, what is the next inflection point? Right. What, what, what snaps? I don't know. And and I don't know what that is. Menu prices have to go up. I just don't think you can deliver. You just, you can't. And also food costs are going up. I might interview I did yesterday. Uh, you know, the guy was talking about how uh, he does a lot with uh, sushi and, and he was saying how, you know, soy sauce is going up you know a crazy amount because uh you know soybean i guess probably soybean yields or something who knows but uh you know i I think people customers you know they just can't you cannot get you you can't get a fast food burger price at a restaurant that's got waiters and everything you know what i mean like it just doesn't work that way like you can't do it and if you want to eat deliciously great food then you got to pay the price for that and and part of the price of the food is the labor that went in to make it and bring it to your table and you know we're all like the the fast food guys are all battling these dollar menus and these crazy bogos and all this other stuff you know but at some point we gotta pay people to work and make this stuff and the you know the prices just have to go up a little bit to support paying people a wage where they, where they go, this is my job and I can make a living at this, you know? Right. So. Yeah. It's, it's inevitable. And, you know, I don't necessarily believe it's um, minimum wage adjustment. I think the market takes care of that. I mean, we're, oh yeah, man. I mean, around here, we're looking at, you know, starting line cooks at 16 bucks an hour, uh, yeah. you know, just, so, just to get people in the door. 
Yeah, so what does a $15 minimum wage do for that guy? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, minimum. Mi the minimum wage argument is it's really just a give back to the unions in a lot of ways because a lot of the union contracts are based off of a multiple on the minimum wage. Yeah. So when you crank the minimum wage up, you're, you automatically raise the salaries of uh, union workers that, uh, you know, are at 1.5 or two multiple of the minimum wage. So, uh, cause, because you're right. Most restaurants are paying more than the minimum wage to get people to work there. I mean, you see the signs all the time on every restaurant, 10, $15 an hour. Absolutely. Um, well, and, and the other thing with, with labor too is, you know, and, and I, you know, some of this stuff's coming out of like this, our thought process and what we do as a company. But, you know, a lot of what we have to look at too is not just getting people in the door, but how can we do the best job of, of training them? Like, you know, I'll give you an example. I used to be a trainer at PF Chang's back like in the early 2000s. I was a waiter and a trainer and a manager, different roles. But, you know, we spent a lot of time back in the day focusing on culture. This is the PF Chang's culture. This is why we do this. This is what that thing means. This is the cat and this is the mural and all these things. And we would spend like days, we'd spend a sure. day of that kind of stuff. Now you can't do that anymore because the average employee is going to be there for 45 to 50 days. So every day you spend not making that guy productive is a is one more day you got to get out of that guy for ROI, right? To make an ROI on that person. So when you look at like, how are you onboarding? How are you training? How are you setting up the line to be as efficient as possible that required the least amount of training as possible? What job aids do you have? You know, and then, and, I, and I'm also not, a, I think training is important, but I think process is more important right, than training because right. I, I don't want to pay you to remember, memorize anything. Like that's the dumbest thing I could possibly do is pay you to memorize something up front. You will memorize something by doing it 5,000 times. If you make the same cheeseburger 5,000 times, you'll know what goes on it. So how do you cut as much of the, the dumb training out of the job and you supplant it with process and job aid to get somebody productive, cut their onboarding from four days to two, you just, you know, you yeah. made, you got an ROI on that guy that much quicker, you know? So exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, it makes total sense to me. Um, well, we're both smart guys, man. That's why. I yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, cool. So what, okay. So we did that question. Uh, well, we kind of covered both of those. What is the one thing that you thought the, what is the one thing you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't? <laughs> it's. Yeah, it's almost like that that to turn that question in reverse, you know, what is it doing yeah. that I thought it wouldn't be doing? Um, what did I think it would be doing if, that it isn't? Um, well, you know, I I hate I hate delving more into the political side of things, but I would really like to see uh, you know, a lot more action on on dreamers and um, you know, getting, getting more people into the workforce, you know, that's, it's, yeah. it's all, it's always a, a, a touchy subject and stuff, but I, you know, I've worked with a number of dreamers and things in our companies and, um, it's so difficult for them to, to have any kind of stability. Um, you know, I, I'd love to see, I'd love to see more, 
people in the industry get involved in the influential side of things and whether that's political, local, national, whatever it is. Um, I, I think there's a lot more that can be done to create the environment that helps grow business in general. Um, you know, so many, it, it's so difficult because so many people are so focused on just keeping the lights on every day and just surviving, which is yeah. necessary and admirable. And, and you know, it has, there's nothing wrong with that, but um, there's a lot more that really can be done to try to help the industry as, as a whole. Um, and I'd love to see, you know, more people kind of get involved in that process or be at least be more aware of it, uh, of, of, how they're impacted by by all of that stuff that goes on, um, mostly on a national level. Well, and I mean, so like as an example, when I was a manager at one of the restaurants, you know, our back of the house staff was all uh, Hispanic origin, I would say, um, and then you know our bussers and um, yeah, so our kitchen and 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 our bussers were all Hispanics, and you know I was a manager and. You know, you have to do all your paperwork. You have to look at their IDs and their social security numbers and all this stuff. And every single person there worked, had the same exact street address. You know, they all lived on the same yeah. exact street, which I don't think is like, you know, which is the street that the fake ID guy put on their licenses, right? Sure. And so you're putting, you know, you're putting business people in this position where they have to take, like, they have to take these fraudulent documents because they got to staff their business. And I'm not trained to tell you if that was fraudulent or not. And I'm not willing to take on the liability to, to, to deny somebody work if it wasn't fraudulent, you know, and exactly. it's, it's so stupid. And then you, you know, because we have such a dumb immigration policy that we, we create these, all these negative incentives, right? Across the entire ecosystem. We created this whole identity theft thing to accommodate for people who were coming into the country who wanted to get work. So now people are stealing social security numbers or right. fake licenses. Well, and just have a worker program. Yeah. You're not a citizen, but you get a real ID, a real tax ID, so that the money actually flows where it needs to flow. We make it easy on the employers. And if, and right. if the person breaks the law, then you say, hey, you're not a citizen. You don't get to be here anymore. You know, it was a pay to play thing. You, right. Your job was to come in here, work and be a great uh, uh, guest citizen of our country. And in return, you know, don't break the law. It, yeah. It, there's I, a way I, to figure this out. Right. I think that's unfortunately, that's a little too reasonable. Um, but yeah, you of know, course. I, I think, as I recall correctly, I think it was Anthony Bourdain, um, you know, who who said something to the effect of all these people who want to keep everybody out, you know, they don't realize that if all those people go away, they'll never eat at another restaurant again, you know, that kind of situation. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's really true. And it's unfortunate that the, the system doesn't support that because everybody says, Oh, you know, leave the jobs for, for the Americans, right. You're taking jobs away. And, and, uh, you know, they're, they're yeah. just, they're, we, we, we don't have enough people to staff, the way we need to staff. And so, you know, that I, I, like I said, going back to the original question, I think, I think I, I wish sometimes more people in the industry were, were more active and involved um, in, in trying to create change and, and, you know, make progress on, on that aspect of things. 
let's just get some people in here who want to work, who are good yeah. people, and yeah. let's just get them in here. And let's not force people to deal with, you know, I'm not an immigration agent. That's not what I do. I manage a restaurant. So right. how about, right. you know, you guys handle that part on the border and get me the people in here that want to work, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And safely, safely like, pay taxes, yeah. all that stuff. Well, I do think, too, there are a lot of people in this country who look at restaurant jobs as beneath them. Like they would rather take welfare or some other program than go in and clean a pot or cook right. a burger. And I think we also, as an industry, we need to be helping. We need to be looking at those people that are better staffing us today. But we really got to start reaching out to, uh, you know, to all we need to be doing a better job. Like, so, you know, people look at like, oh, I want to get a job at McDonald's. Like there's a stigma to that. Oh, you work at McDonald's, right? Oh, you get a fast food job. There's like a stigma to that, you know, that a lot of people carry. And I think the restaurant industry really needs to up its game. The, the NRA could up its game, not the gun association, restaurant association, where like, <laughs> yeah. you know, where they start saying like, they start showing some famous people that powerful, successful people and let them say that, hey, my first job was at McDonald's. My first job was bussing tables or dishwashing or peeling, cutting broccoli at a really fancy kitchen, you know? Because like we are one of the industries where you don't need a college degree. You just need to be a good people person who works hard and you can make a lot of money. And, and nobody ever wants to talk about that side of the restaurant industry. They right. don't want to make fun of like waiting tables or, you know, working in a kitchen or they want to make fun of fast food. And some of the richest people I know own a ton of fast food restaurants and are killing it. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, no, uh, people don't necessarily see them as, as potential careers, but they absolutely can be. You know, it's it's great if it's going to be your first job and it's going to lead to something else and teach you skills that you need and, you know, how to show up on time, how to be responsible, how to work with others, you know, learn customer yeah. service all those great things. And you can take that and apply it to the next thing. That's super. But there still is also an opportunity to make it a career. And I think, you know, more people need to need to recognize that. Yeah. And and the industry needs to do a good job, too, of making uh, restaurant work uh, as as a normal a job as you can have, like any other job. Right. Where, right. You know. Right. Absolutely. So. But yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've enjoyed this because of it, it really is. It's true that the restaurant industry is a kick-ass industry. Excuse my French. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, it, and you can have a great life and have a really fun time and, and make a lot of people happy in this business. And so I wish that the NRA did a better job of reaching out to high school kids and saying, Hey, look at this as a career path. You're not looking to go to college. You know, you don't necessarily have to go to college to be a restaurant manager you know, um, or, sure. or a district manager. What you need to be able to do is motivate people to follow processes and achieve greatness. And if you have that capability, which is a leadership capability, I mean, I would hire, I would hire a shift, an effective shift manager at McDonald's over a college graduate any given day to manage my team because in a lot of cases, because if you could be an effective shift manager at McDonald's, then you can lead people, man. You know what I mean? Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> so, 
because that's a hard job. Um, well, cool. So we're at the last question. Crazy, huh? I know. So it's give, nice. me a, give me a war story. Tell me something that makes you cringe, something that you oh, was hilarious, something that you can't believe you got through. I want to hear that, like, you know, just yeah. a good war story. So, okay. Um, I, th th there's one that I always kind of come back to and it's, it's, um, it's a testament really to kind of the team that I was working with at the time. So um, this was probably about four or five years ago. Um, one of the, the old restaurants that I had been working with for a few years, uh, it's called the original Ninfas and it's been around since 1973 and it's, credited in, in Texas with being the birthplace of the fajita. So first oh, place oh. commercially in a restaurant setting to sell uh, fajita. And so, um, you know, opened in 1973, expanded a, a bit over, over time, had been in an old house, you know, had grown, grown and grown. But the kitchen, which was quite large, probably a couple thousand square feet, but long and skinny, ran the length of the expanded restaurant and had not been updated in a million years. And it was, when I got there, I mean, you just, you didn't even want to look in there and there, it was falling apart and, you know, water on the floor and stuff wouldn't drain. And it was just, it was bad. And so we decided that we were going to do, and, and mind you at, at that time, this was a restaurant, it was probably about 7,000 square feet and it was doing seven eight million dollars a year i mean extraordinarily wow. busy wow. you know very very well known um and you know it's just just crushing and so we decided that we were going to completely renovate the kitchen i mean just top to bottom start to finish the, the entire thing start over from scratch and so we planned all of this it was going to take <laughs> It was going to take a bunch of crews 30 days. We figured out how we were going to do this in 30 days, take it down to the studs, dig up the floor, redo the plumbing, redo the electrical, change out all the equipment, add a, a wood burning oven. I mean, all this other stuff, literally starting from scratch. And we said, we're going to do all this in 30 days, 24 hours a day. And we're going to keep the restaurant open. <laughs> <laughs> said, okay, how are we going to do this? And essentially what we did was we created an outdoor cooking area underneath a tent. And I went to the city and I got a temporary festival permit <laughs> that allowed us to cook outside. We set up a bunch of grills. We, uh, we brought in a mobile, uh, like a, a small 18 wheeler that was a, uh, a converted dishwashing station, right? So that we could, we could do all of our dishwashing in this mobile trailer outside. Uh, we cooked outside. We took over the covered kind of indoor patio area and made that a kind of service station, kind of expo area, etc. Kept all the dining rooms open, kept the, the bars open. Um, and while the original kitchen was completely renovated in the span of 30 days, we managed to keep the restaurant open on a limited menu, kept people coming through the doors, kept people happy, kept the, the staff employed, um, and did about 60% of the revenue for that month 
uh, year over year as we had done instead of just shutting down the entire place um, over the course of, of those 30, 31 days. And so I always look back at that as just, you know, kind of one of those crazy, this is what we want to do. How the hell are we going to do it? Is this possible? And um, actually we're able to pull it off. So it was, it was a pretty cool experience. Yeah, that, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> it was, it was fun. It was, it wasn't fun at the time, but looking back on it now, it's fun. <laughs> That's why it's a war story, right? Exactly. Because it was miserable at the time, but you survived <laughs> it and you're 10x better for it. Right, right. And now and now that place is doing, God, probably nine and a half million a year. And it has a clean kitchen. Yes. <laughs> you can actually take people back there. And 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 the when when the health inspectors come through from the city, they're actually not afraid to go in there. If the health inspector is afraid and they keep you open, there's a problem with the health inspections. <laughs> right. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a true pleasure to meet you. Um, we will put the uh, link to Convive up on the uh, show notes. And, Fantastic. Uh, yeah, man. Good luck to you. Uh, good luck to your for your opening. If you're looking for a job in Houston and you happen to hear this or you know someone who is, you got a big entertainment center going in here in a couple months. So go check them out. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. We need, we yeah. need people. We need people. <laughs> yeah. So cool. We'll put a link to that. We'll get me a link to that as well. We'll put it in the show notes and people can pass it on um, if they want. That'd be great. So, uh, okay, cool, man. Well, it was a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Order up show podcast listeners. Thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. And we are cranking on the episodes guys. So we're going to keep a lot of fresh, great interviews coming your way. And thanks again, Jonathan. Take care. Thank man. you. Appreciate it.